Hi everyone, and welcome to uh, Dr. Dark After Dark number 30, Discussions with Zach Abraham. Uh, he is uh, at KYR Radio, for those that don't know. Uh, Zach's the principal and CIO of Bulwark Capital Management, I'm probably pronouncing these things wrongly, in the US. Uh, he's the host of Know Your Risk Radio, which is actually where I first discovered him, and, and that was via its podcast. So think it's seattle based um so anyone there can listen to it but it's uh, the podcast is on all the usual places uh and it's every week super good guests really good would definitely recommend it um zach is really candid never short of interesting views so i think this will be good fun um as always this is not investment advice please do your own research before making any trades zach welcome how are you doing I'm doing good. And you didn't mess up any of the pronouncements. You got it all right. We're Seattle-based. You got the nail on the head. Very good. Well, first time for everything. So um, <laughs> for the, the listeners, some listeners won't know you. I mean, my, you know, a lot of the listeners will. Um, but can you just give a bit more background on yourself and then we'll get into the macro stuff. So. Yeah. So we, we run a, a registered investment advisor uh, firm, advisory firm based out of Seattle, Washington. It's actually Tacoma, little suburb. Uh, we're about 40 minutes south of Seattle. I just tell everybody Seattle because I don't want to have to go through explaining Washington State geography. Um, and then I got into the business. I grew up in a, a broker dealer. My, my father and grandfather started a, a BD that specialized in uh, investing in um, very early stage natural resource publicly traded companies. Um, so I grew up in that, in that world and, um, you know, went to college, played football, um, American football, not, not the, not the beautiful game. Um, not soccer. But uh, yeah, not soccer. <laughs> well, yeah. See, but I know I'm, I'm talking to somebody in Hong Kong here and I can't, I can't, I don't want to, you know, geographically bracket myself that bad. Sure, but I'm, I'm British, soccer. so, you know, it's got to be soccer, right? Yeah, they, I thought we've sort of yeah, solved this. You. It's soccer and football. Well, actually, no. The rest of the world still calls soccer football. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. We, 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 we got to play by those rules. So, uh, so, yeah, so then went to school, studied finance and economics, never really considered doing anything else. Um, came by it honestly and went to work for Russell Investments right out of school, a mutual fund company. And then um, through, the, through the financial crisis, I was a young man on the totem pole and was moving up into a, um, a, a, a quasi-analyst slash distribution sales type position they had there on the, on the mutual fund desk that, that I was working at. And uh, that position got froze right before I was supposed to, this was early 2008. Um, and I was sort of young man on the totem pole. So my position that I was supposed to be moving into got, got terminated and, um, got recruited to be a broker at Wells Fargo advisors, uh, kind of took that job. I, I, I was resolutely against being a broker growing up in a brokerage firm. Um, but you know, financial jobs came at a premium, especially in this part of the world during the financial crisis. So took that as a way to pay the bills. And then, you know, that was, shoot, 13 years ago now, something like that. And uh, here we are with our own firm. And we're not too big, manage about $130 million. Um, and, um, yeah, so many, many different trails. We did, a, did a short stint uh, running a retail investment arm for an investment bank down in, down in L.A. And um, it, all roads led to here. I like what I'm I, – I love, I love where we're at, long, strange road to get here. But, um, yeah, now, now I'm sitting here talking to, talking to Dr. Dark. So that, that's, that's pretty much the summation. Cool, fantastic. And so you're uh, in the minority of people in finance that have 
actually been through a cycle before. So, <laughs> I mean, of course, some have been through many, but like, you know. Um, yeah, no, it's funny. Um, it, and it's, I'm sure you probably, I think you're a couple years older than me, but um, it's funny because, you know, it, time flies and you're used to being the young guy on the totem pole. And then you realize that you've managed now through two of the greatest financial events of the last 40 years, 50 years. Um, and you see a lot of the same madness and, and the, you know, quite honestly, Chris, I think that this is sort of like my third deal just because I was, I wasn't actively managing money, uh, during the tech bubble, but yeah. you know, my family run BD, right. I was right. I was right in there. And, and I, you know, I don't, I've talked about this on, I was on Tobias, uh, Carlisle's podcast and he was asking me and, he seemed, uh, I think his comment to me was, you're far more gray and far more jaded than most guys your age in this business. <laughs> and I said, uh, well, part of it is growing up in that business. You see, the, you see the manias and the outcomes firsthand and you see the fallout. And so I think you kind of get a, um, you know, a, a, a maturity, if you will, or a, or a jade or a gristle that, that you would probably take uh, other managers a few more cycles to develop. So um, yeah, this, this one, I will say though, that what we're currently in, uh, it takes the cake. It's, it's a, it's a fascinating environment to say the least. Right. And I think, yeah, I'm really similar. So I think we're both in that I, I can, yeah, I may be one or two years older than you. So I can sort of just about claim I'm like the oldest millennial on the planet, but actually millennials <laughs> will laugh and say, well, no, you're not, you're an exer. And then of course they actually just call you a boomer, but, um, for, 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 the, <laughs> for, for the memes, but, um, I had a similar thing because in 2000, you know, I was 20. I wasn't managing any money, obviously, but I did start my first business online and saw, you know, which was a, um, a, a esports business. And so it was like a very illuminating time to be involved in all that. So I think, you know, I kind yeah. of give myself a half a half a cycle kind of mark for that. Um, but um, yeah. So yeah, two and a half. I, I would say the same. So we're both kind of two and a half cyclers at this point. Right. It's, well, all right, this cycle might end up giving you kind of one and a half after it's done. So, um, Getting, uh, man, it has, I tell, I'll tell you, I was looking, it was funny. I was just talking to a family member. I was looking at a picture of myself in January and I have gotten more gray in the last eight months. Like you, like it's visibly seeable. I'm wearing the last eight months, uh, in my hair coloring for sure. I know the feeling. And my kids don't help on that either. So, um, so look, no, 20, no, I mine don't either. So, twenty twenty is. I mean, the only way to describe it is crazy. I mean, you know, literally every meme in the world is out there about twenty twenty, and uh, you know, it's super simple. Open to question, like you know, how has your thesis evolved through this year? Like, um, so many crazy things. No one has possibly got everything right. I, a lot of my podcasts have been around how hard this has been, about how everyone on Twitter that says they're perfect traders are all lying and like that the most people are going to be thinking this is insane most people are not going to just put a hundred percent of their wealth into apple and go to the beach like this is just not reality so you know you you're managing you know over 100 million bucks so you know you've got to take these things seriously um you know how, how have you been kind of evolving your thought process this year you know what's funny? For, first of all, I'm laughing about your comment about everybody getting it right. I, you know, um, I have always, uh, there were a lot of those people. It's pretty funny. I guess it's sort of a naive part of myself. I, when I first got, I've never been involved in social media. Um, the only reason I got a, 
I never had a MySpace page, never had a Facebook page. This wasn't my thing. Um, and the only reason I got involved in Twitter is when we started our firm, you know, the marketing people told us you have to have social media presence. So my wife started my Twitter page and um, uh, I really wasn't paying any attention to it. And then ran into a couple great pieces of research and just I got sucked down the vortex and just realized what a valuable source of information it was. But one of the funny realizations as I had is I was taking everybody at their word on their performance and, and found out in verifiable ways that there's a lot of these guys on there blowing smoke and they're, they're just completely full of it. Um, so, I, you know, my whole thing is, you know, I think it's of more value to lead with the failures. Um, you know, I, this, there are things that we've done right. There are things that we've done wrong. I think the thing that we have done probably the most consistently right um, over this entire cycle is we've, we've performed very well through all the downturns. Uh, we have not bought the bottoms nearly aggressively enough. Um, and my, I kinda, I'm kind of kicking myself because I came to a realization probably in 2011. No, it's probably a little bit later than that. It's probably 2013. So I'll digress a little bit. We, we did very well through 0809. Um, part of it was dumb luck. Part of it was um, the hubris of age, meaning I was still a relatively young manager at that time. I uh, wasn't managing a very big book. And looking back on it, I made the right calls, but they were calls that were, that I wouldn't do again. Um, you know, for instance, we went, we sold off every single stock we own and went to 100% US treasuries in November of 2007. Beautiful wow. move. We, yeah. we wow. made like 20%. But, but here's the thing, I'd never do that again, right? I was so sure um, that I was right. And, and I, we, you know, I couldn't, I'm running retail money, so we couldn't short it, but I was just laughing with a client the other day, looking back on it, it was the right move. But now, you know, running 130 million, um, you know, I'd never make that call again. Um, it, it was kind of the brash aspect of youth. Um, and then coming out of the, coming out of the crisis, we did really well because we were sitting on a 20% game when the market was down 60%. And, you know, you were looking everywhere you looked, everything was so cheap. I mean, and we bought a bunch of safe stuff that we thought could last through anything. Um, you know, not at all the sexy stuff, just, just the reason we bought stocks. I remember my grandfather telling me, Zachary, if you're investing for the end of the world, you better be right. Cause it's only going to happen once. Um, which was sage advice. And, uh, you know, we were buying natural gas and oil companies and pipeline companies that had clean balance sheets that were paying 13% dividends because their stock, their, their stock price had dropped so much. And so you fast forwarded a year later to May, April, May of 2010, and that portfolio we were running had doubled. So we, and, and again, you know, I'll even, you know, I'll even tell you, if we were really smart, we'd have bought banks and we'd have been up 300% over that same period of time. Um, but nonetheless, the performance was really good. And then I, I think that truthfully between you and I, that's probably one of the worst things that could have happened to me because um, I started believing I was probably a lot better than I was. And we were very heavily invested in the gold trade and continued to mint money till 2011. And we made the right decision. We pulled a lot off the table uh, with gold. And, and, and again, it was partly luck. I thought the market was overheated and was waited for a better entry point that just never came. Um, you know, so there, so there's a, you know, there's always a, at least in my experience, there's always some aspects of luck and, and things have to break your way, but 
um, it really made me dig in my heels and think, okay, gold is going to go up. The dollar has to collapse because all this money printing and the Fed's balance sheet and all these different things that we all know. And then watching 2012 and then 2013 and then 2014, we didn't lose money during that period of time, but we weren't keeping up with the market um, at all. I was still very cautiously positioned. And I remember just coming to the realization one day where I just said, you know what, this thing is going to keep rolling. Um, because they're going to print it every turn. They're going to pump the liquidity like you can't believe it. Every single sign of stress or duress. And you need to stay long this market hard until the currency starts to falter. And I think one of my biggest regrets of the last cycle has been not adhering to that because that was correct. But also realizing, you know, how many weird things are going on, the debts building up, so many of the macro risks that were out there and that still are. Um, so, so our thesis all along, looking back on it, was dead right, which was essentially, look, the party goes until there's inflation. And, um, you know, because when these central banks and these governments go all in, I mean, we're, we're sitting there looking at it right now. It's really hard to get in front of that. And so I think the biggest regret that I have over the last, the, this cycle is, you know, just not being aggressive enough. And then, and then this year, same exact story played out in a microcosm. We got really bared up and, and, you know, for those of us, you know, people out there, it's, uh, you know, you can pull up the podcast, you can hear us talking about it in the first two weeks of February. I, I was telling you earlier off air and I was telling my analysts this at the time in, in, in February, I thought this was the easiest short of my career. I just, it, it seemed so uh, obvious. And so we did really well through the downturn. Um, we gave a little back because I didn't, I didn't anticipate the, the, the violence of the move. Um, but I think our, our two stock portfolios that we run, were down about 9% on the March 23rd bottom. Um, and we picked up a couple, play, a couple pieces here and there. And, and the only reason I did that, Chris, honestly, was because of being bitten so many times in the past from not buying the bottoms, right? Not, not buying when you get those drops. Um, so, we, we bought a few things here and there, but um, I'll tell you that the, the biggest shock in my career is watching this market reclaim highs within the last, you know, four or five months. I just, I've never seen anything like it. Um, I, nobody alive has. Um, it's, it's pretty incredible. So I, 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 think I don't that, think anyone dead has either. So. Right. Yeah. Right. That's a solid point. Sorry. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I think that I think, and I don't say this, I, I don't say this pridefully at all. I think our thesis was really rock solid the whole way through. Um, but I didn't stick to it. I didn't trust our thesis or, or you know, I just, I, you know, you, you do this long enough and you're, you're, it's the bullet you don't see. And when you're managing other people's money, especially retail money, you know, I take that risk of loss very seriously. And, um, you know, I just, I, I mean, we, everybody goes, the stock market sold off too hard. On March 23rd, there at the bottom, we were down 36%. The S&P was still supporting an 18 price to earnings ratio. You know, I mean, it, it wasn't cheap by any stretch of the imagination. And to think that we rallied that hard off the bottom, I'm still, I'm still sort of in disbelief. So that's kind of a long rambling answer to your question. But yeah, I'm still scratching my head as to 2020. It's, it's pretty amazing. Well, it's not over yet. And no, um, there's only a minor thing like an election with obviously um, <laughs> political candidates that are totally normal. Um, but I can totally attest that I was listening to your podcast in February this year, at, in January and late last year, and you, you'd seen the slowdown that was happening last year. And then, of course, we had that little bit of kind of 
a bounce in Q4 into January. And then, um, and this was pre-COVID, but you, I mean, people should go. I actually think it's really interesting, people that have podcasts that go back and it's all there. I think it's really valuable listening to what people were saying just before these types of events, because it's amazing how people rewrite history. Um, and um, oh well you well i think that's a great point because even as somebody like so i just said we got the we got the retail housing thing right we didn't short banks we bought treasuries there's an element of luck to it but even going through that at the time you listen to every manager talk now and it's almost like nobody lost any money during 0809 oh everybody saw it coming oh yeah i saw it coming and you just laugh because you and i lived through it it's complete nonsense you know what i mean um everybody was getting blown up and uh, you know like you said everybody rewrites history and i don't say that saying hey we're the ones that actually got it right i just say that just i would encourage everybody to be really honest about their returns because that's what's going to make you a better investor you know examining the mistakes you know it's the old i've had mark Yusko on the show many times and i've stolen this line from him he says that with each investment we either get richer or wiser but never both and i I could not agree with him, right? I don't learn anything from my successes. All my lessons have been learned through losses and making mistakes. Um, and I, 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 it's funny you bring that up. I love doing that. I love going back before a crisis and listening to what guys said, just, just to garner information. But I think it's also, a, I think it's also a decent way to tell whether somebody, you know, really knows what they're talking about. Because, you, like you said, in the world of Zoom video and Twitter and everything. Um, you know, you can just make up your own reality. And it's been shocking to me to realize how many people do that. I was just in there taking everybody at face value. Um, and then finding out that a lot of these guys were just, you know, just making it up. Yeah, no, totally. And so I want to dive in on something you said, which I thought was really interesting. So you had a thesis and in effect, this is a thesis over for at least a decade, you know, a long time, um, you know, and yeah. It sounds to me, and I don't, but I don't want to put words in your mouth, that at certain points, you, know, you start playing mind games with yourself and questioning your own thesis. And every investor's done this, right? And, and like, I think what's not talked about enough often is, is when those mind games start happening. And you know, the, sometimes people make knee-jerk reactions. Maybe that, that's good. Maybe that's bad. I mean, it, it depends. Um, but like, in effect, people start getting away from their core process. And that tends to be kind of a, a, a dangerous thing for most. Um, and like, so, I mean, is that kind of, kind of a, a right kind of summation? And if so, like, um, how do you try and kind of keep yourself honest? Um, or, or maybe sometimes you just have to make some mistakes and then kind of get back to that thesis. So. Yeah, I think that, I, I think that um, you know, I think part of it was youth. I think part of it was um, another really big blow. There, there, there was, there, I, I'll say that probably from the end of 2012 to probably the middle of 2015 was probably my most frustrating part of my career. Um, because like I said, we had done so great during the financial crisis and we'd gotten the bounce back so right. And I was really used to being right. Um, and I legitimately believe, you know, I just, like I said, I was believing the inflationary thesis. Uh, I was wrong for a variety of reasons. Um, and yet we managed to be wrong and not get our heads cut off, which is, um, 
you know, which is another thing is if you can be wrong and not lose a lot, that's, that's not a bad way to go. Um, I think a lot of it though was, was self-doubt. So we, you know, we, we started figuring out that, you know, the full scope, I, well, I, I'll go back to 2008. I remember when the fed came out and said, uh, quantitative easing. And I remember sitting there going, what in the hell is quantitative easing? I didn't even know what it was. Um, and, and, you know, over the next three to four years, just really digging in a lot and really studying hard and realizing there was so much that I didn't know. And then coming to the conclusion right around 2015, 2014, late 2014, um, that look, and this was the thesis and this is, this is, you know, where, what I'm, and it had been the, you know, we, it'd been an evolving thesis to a certain degree, but, um, just really coming to the realization, especially after, you know, the, the machinations in early or excuse me, late 2016, when the fed finally raised rates for the first time. And then, you know, oil price plummeted and gold shot up and, and we did well, well during that period of time. And just coming to the realization that look, you know, I'm a big macro guy. I always was always will be, but what all, all these central banks, you know, they, we can make it as complex as we want to, but essentially what they're doing is they're using printed money to mute out macro forces and they're deadening that. And they can do that until the, the, you know, as long as there's, as long as there's confidence in the currency, really, there's no end to that game. And, um, and coming to that realization and just saying, okay, when does that end? It ends with inflation and you need to be long stocks aggressively until inflation starts to creep up. And then that's when you need to start putting on the brakes. And, um, I just, I look back on that, um, frustratingly because we were so right about that. And yet, you know, it didn't stick to my guns. And so I think I, you know, I don't think it's a mistake I'll make again in my career. Um, I didn't really view it as a violation of the process because I think you're right. I think that, you know, style drift and, and departing from your process for whatever reason, I think that's, you know, that's, that's where you get into trouble, bottom line. Um, I think it's also, you know, you need to have the conviction if, if, if you want better returns, right? I mean, bottom line is if you want better returns, if you want to ride the indexes, that's fine. But if you want better returns, the only way to do it is stick to your convictions. And then also having the conviction too, that when you're right and you start being right, stepping on the gas um, and, and just learning that, you know, um, I just think it takes time, you know, and, and we can all say it and it sounds good on a podcast. You're like, oh, that's really smart. But when you're the one pulling the trigger and pushing the buttons on the buy and sells on the portfolio, it's a different story. And I, I think um, um, definitely, like you said, I, I don't really feel like we made the error of departing from our process, but I do think we made a big error in not, you know, not having enough conviction and not pressing on the gas. And, and yet at the same time, Chris, and it seems like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth, it's hard for me to fault myself because I think guys like you and I have a, an understanding or an appreciation for the absurdity that we're watching on a day-to-day basis, the level of excess that's built up, the level of, you know, um, potential disasters, right? It, it really is unparalleled when you, when you look at what a powder keg the world is. And, you know, you've got that hanging over your shoulder of, you know, you know, Eleanor Smith, you know, if you blow up her portfolio, right, her, her retirement comes to a bad end. So I, I think, um, I think it was a, I think it was a tough one in terms of learning that lesson, which is you got to stick to your convictions and, you know, when you're wrong, admit you're wrong and, 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 and change course. But, um, you know, when you've really done the research and you've put in your time and you've got a conviction, you know, don't let, 
don't let things shake you out of it. Um, and, uh, you know, when you look back, if you look back at all those market dips that we've had in the last 10 to 12 years, uh, there was no inflation at the time. So you should have bought those dips aggressively. And I knew that that was the thesis and I didn't execute it. So I think, I think it was, um, you know, the conviction of your thesis sticking to your guns. And, and, and then the other thing I realized too, was if you're wrong and it starts going against you, you don't lose 40% in a day. You've got time to adjust as long as you're, as long as you're intellectually honest and, and you'll admit when your thesis is wrong. Um, but until you get proven wrong, write it. And, and I think that's probably the biggest lesson that I learned regarding, regarding that over the last 10 to 12 years. Yeah, no, that's, I think that's great advice. And, and I, look, I think it's like, it's, I mean, it's easy to say, oh, if a trade's going away and your thesis is, if it's all aligned with your thesis, just step on the gas. And, but actually, you know, if, again, if people have got robust risk management, even in their own personal accounts, they, you know, maybe can't go above a certain allocation to a certain trade. And, but, but, but it is true that if something goes your way and you, do have that ability to step on the gas and prove them right. That's how you can get really outsized returns. But, but it's also, you know, with hindsight, it's incredibly simple. So uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, everything well, the is other right. thing, the, the, the other thing that I think you said is uh, uh, huge there that, that I could not agree more with is when, you know, I say step on the gas. Um, that is, that is assuming you are staying inside of your risk management process. And that is something that we are, massively uh, uh, invested in. I mean, we, we never get outside of that. So, you know, we'll step on the gas to limits. And then the other thing I think you need to know, it's just like driving a car. When you step on the gas, you are going faster, which means you need to be more on top of it, which means you need to have tighter risk management and tighter stops. We did that earlier this year. We had a max position in GDX. Um, again, it was a bit lucky. We bottom ticked it. It's actually a funny story. So, and I, I don't mean to, I don't want to co-opt your show here, but assuming I've got a, a few minutes here. Um, if you need so to have a quick earlier flex, in this year, good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, not, not, a, not a flex. I, again, the other, the other side of, 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 again, luck playing a part of it. And, and this is a perfect example. Um, things were obviously really chaotic in March. And the minute this stuff started, I remember sitting there thinking to myself, okay, we, we know what the central banks are going to do. Now, I didn't realize they were going to go all in the way they did. That, that was some serious shock and all. That even shocked me. Um, and I don't think that these are very restrained players. So <laughs> to, to say that I was shocked by the largesse, that's probably saying something. But, um, but what I was saying to myself and to my analyst and uh, our, our other portfolio manager was I, I just said, look, we're approaching the time here where no matter what happens in the portfolio, we will not have gold absent from the portfolio or gold miners absent from the portfolio over the weekend. We're not gonna do it. If we need to move things around interweek and it's out of there for a time, that's okay. But we will not go over a weekend without gold. And the whole reason for that, as I know you know, uh, there's been so many monetary things and they always typically get launched over the weekend, right? When, yeah. we, when we got off the gold standard in 71, right? It was over the weekend. And, and realizing that that was this kind of magnitude of event. And we got to the end, it, and this is perfect. We got to the end of a Friday and we're going over everything. And um, I realized that on Thursday, I had sold gold, the, our gold positions off because I had them stop lost and gold was getting pounded um, just like the markets were at that time. 
And um, the plan was to put them back on right before the end of the day, Friday. Well, Friday was crazy too. Anyway, we get, we, it's about a half hour after market close and we realized we don't have gold in. That weekend was the Sunday that the Fed came out and made their announcement about what they were going to do. Yeah. And I gold spent like 80 the, bucks or something. Yeah. Yeah. And I spent the rest of that Sunday sweating bullets terrified at what was going to happen on the open. And I don't know if people remember this and I can't even remember why, but that Monday morning, there was like a flash crash in miners. Um, yeah. Yes, there was. Yeah. It was, it was the underlying liquidity went um, haywire yes. on GDX and even worse on GDX. Yes. Yeah. So there yes, was a discount of yes. NAV of about 20%, which a few yeah, spots so we, picked up on. I did not at the time, but. Well, I, so I didn't even do that calculation, but I knew that we had just sold our gold miners at like 22 bucks on Thursday. And I pull it up on Monday expecting to see the thing at, you know, 28, 30, but you know, something crazy. And it was down at like 1660. Yeah. Yep. So we start buying it there. We bought some more at 1850. So we bottom ticked it, but it was purely on accident. Um, anyway, long story short. So we wrote it up and 32 was really our break break. Uh, breaking point in the sand for GDX. I'm, I know I'm not the only one that realized the significance to that level. And what we said was, okay, if GDX can get above 32 and hold there for five straight trading days, we're going to step on the gas. So we were already at our max position on GDX, our, our technical max position. And then we've got rules to where we can expand it. If we're using an ETF, we can expand that position to 20%. So we stepped on the gas at like 32.50 and, and put it up there at max at 20%. And that's been obviously a big source of, um, of the gains that we have had this year. And, but, but again, like I was getting back to your comment, uh, you can step on the gas, but that whole time when we increased that, we, then we sold it too. We went back to a regular. So now I think we're sitting right around an 11% position in GDX because it didn't hold above. I think the mark was, I said, if it dips back below 40, somewhere in there, uh, we'd pair it back. So we took our profits, but I think that's a great, you know, it's easily said than done. If you're a home gamer, not watching it though, uh, every single minute, you know, when you step on the gas, you've got to stay inside of your risk, your risk management process and you got to watch it like a hawk. You know, you can't mess around with it. Yeah, no, that's a great example. And, um, I, I mucked up that GDX trade. I, um, I sold just when you did at about the 2022 and it was coming down and, and I thought, Oh, I can buy this back at 10. <laughs> I was yeah, just being yeah, like, yeah. I'm like, this is in free fall. This is nuts. And, and, and I hadn't, what I hadn't realized was that V shape bottom that happened incredibly quickly was just the mispricing of the NAV because of illiquidity. And the stupid thing is right. I'd listened to all the interviews on this. There was real vision had covered this before and a bunch of other smart people were like, look out for this type of stuff. And, um, but in the heat of the moment, well, also you, I can't even get real time NAVs because I don't have Bloomberg. Right. So, you know, there, there are things I can get day old NAVs, but day old NAVs are useless in that scenario. Yeah. So, yeah. I've heard a few people on Fintwick claim they knew exactly what was happening with that and they told all their friends to buy it and all this stuff. And it's obviously complete bullshit. Maybe they, you know, bought it themselves juice for those reasons. But I suspect most people had, yeah, I'm, I expect some people just saw it go down and thought, wow, this is cheap. Let's buy it. And fair enough. Well, yeah. And I think that you, and I think it's good for everybody to know. And I, you know, and I know you'll agree because, you know, I follow you and you're an honest guy. If you really run money, anytime you bottom or top tick something, you it's luck. You know, you can you like you said in hindsight, you can make up your you you can make up your story 
But, you know, and I could sit there and say it too. And I could even show you trade receipts and be like, oh, we knew it's sick. But the truth of it is that we didn't. We violated our terms. I sold gold when I shouldn't have and got lucky. Um, you know, that's the, <laughs> and that's what bottom ticking is. I mean, nobody can time bottoms and tops perfectly. It's just that person isn't alive. You know, so if you're listening to a guy that th says he can, or he's trying to sell you a subscription service because he'll tell you he's got all the C, I mean, there is no trick guys, right? There is no secret sauce. No, nobody's got, nobody's got a crystal ball. So exactly. A, a wise person told me once it's like, you got to think of a hamburger and you, you want to get the meat of the move, which is the middle, like whatever, 60 or 80%. But you know, to get the, to get the buns either side, i.e. the bottom and the top, what, what, why do you need to be in that game? You just don't. Right. Um, right. No, one can. no, I couldn't agree. I, I love that analogy. That's so true. I, I, the other thing too, is that, you know, the bonds to use your analogy, there's the riskiest part of the trade, right? Um, you know, that's when you can lose them. You know, it's just, it, I, again, you know, bulls make money, bears get money, pigs get slaughtered. Um, if you bottom ticket or you top ticket, congratulations, self pat, pat yourselves on the back, but, but don't walk around believing that you've now become a savant because, um, you know, I'll just give you firsthand knowledge. <laughs> you, it, it, you know, I've, I've toyed with those ideas at a time. And, and, um, one of the things I've learned now is that the minute I feel that pride keeping in, or if I feel myself flexing on something to, to look because there's probably another bullet headed my way. Right. So I wanted to dive into, so, I mean, I, I, you know, the whole concept of inflation and deflation, and, and this is of course, one of Fintwit's most favorite things for people to argue about <laughs> with a hundred percent certainty that they're right, which I've always found hilarious. Um, and yeah. people get so annoyed and it's because they're over positioned in a position and yep. they're talking their trade. And whilst everyone has a bit of a tendency to talk their trade, I fully get that. I think there's very few people who are, you know, as, balanced all the time on both sides but having said that like i don't believe anyone can know this for certainty right now but the interesting thing is you know because we one can argue about what is inflation now people are you know rolling out milton friedman at the moment and people are now arguing on just the definition we haven't even got into how it's measured and the five million different measures in the us and frankly every other country you know which are plucked out of thin air to be whatever a government wants at any moment or a central bank and but I mean, I don't know which way you want to take it. Like, like how ultimately, I think most people understand that if you create enough of something, i.e. money, and it has ways of leaking out into the system, this whole bank reserve thing is an interesting thing. But again, there are ways and the way right now is via stimulus and can go via the treasury general account. And, and so, and you know, ultimately, if you print so much of something, yeah, to your point, the currency goes. That's the final kind of like end game in some ways. Um, but we have no idea if that's tomorrow or in 10 years. So like, how, how do you think through that inflation deflation kind of, or disinflation, whatever you want to call it, argument kind of yeah. right now? Because it's pretty topical. So especially with Jerome Powell talking, I think on Thursday at Jackson Hole. Um, yeah. Um, so, you know, I... We, we've spent a ridiculous amount of time looking into this and right out of the gates, I'll tell you, we haven't got it figured out. <laughs> so, um, but, but, you know, first of all, I think it's really important to start with how, like you, you, you alluded to this, how we measure it. 
there's so many different ways to measure. First of all, if you were using the same metrics, uh, and don't quote me on this, but I, I believe if you're using the CPI uh, methodology that they were using back in 1980, I think we'd be running at something like six, six and a half, seven. Yeah, it's, it's about five or six percent. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, that sounds right. Um, so it, it really is, you know, how you measure inflation. Um, I think that how you measure inflation needs to change over time because I think that, you know, you know, supply chain management and the te role technology plays in it. I think that traditional inflation, the way that we understood it and the way that we saw in the past, like fuel lines in the seventies and things of that nature. I'm not so sure you're going to see that kind of inflation, but I do think that you are seeing the inflation certainly in asset prices. I, I definitely think you're seeing it in land real estate, especially here in the Seattle area. Uh, and, and I know a lot of other places around the, around the country are, are seeing it as well. Um, and the way I look at it is you have um, the inflation is the, if real inflation really starts to pick up and it gets to the point where they have to raise rates. Cause I think the interesting thing about inflation is, you know, there's, um, there's myriad different tools to use to fight quote unquote deflation. Um, there really aren't to fight inflation. The only thing you can do is shrink the money supply and raise interest rates. Um, and yet if you do that in this environment, you blow the entire thing up, right? So the medicine at that point is probably worse than the disease uh, or it's certainly a quicker killer than the disease. So, you know, I, when anybody has certainty about this topic, it, it I, you know, I immediately play, it, it makes me skeptical of them just because of what you've said. I, we are off, we are completely off the map. You know, we are doing things monetarily and fiscally that, that nobody ever thought was possible. That if you ran $9 trillion deficits, that's our own internal estimate, by the way. So I know we're not running a $9 trillion deficit, but we think you're gonna see an infrastructure bill tacked on here in the US before the end of the year. They're gonna pass another stimulus bill or consumer spending is gonna drop through the floor again. Uh, so we view that as only a matter of time, but we think by the end of the year, you're gonna be looking at eight to $9 trillion US deficits with the DXY still above 90. Uh, you know, if you asked me that 18 months ago, I'd have told you it wasn't possible. So, you know, I think that everybody needs to approach it with some humility and realize that you're seeing the unthinkable happen on a daily basis. Um, the, the interesting thing, I had Luke Groman on our show two, two weeks ago, and uh, we had an interesting conversation about this. And I think that this is a little twist that, and we'll keep an eye on it, right? It, it, it really interests me. And I, I'm not sure if it's the Achilles heel in this whole scenario. But during that, during that crisis, I believe it was during that crisis. Maybe, yeah, it was. Where the Fed, the Fed took, uh, um, they arbitrarily decided that treasuries no longer applied to the uh, to the leverage ratios and stuff like uh, uh, the 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 leverage limits and things of that nature on the bank's balance sheets, and you know who is who is the you know and it's no secret to anybody who will be the predominant buyer or the dominant buyer of treasuries over the next ten to fifteen years, probably even longer. It's going to be the Federal Reserve. So if you're telling the banks that you back up that there are no leverage limits on how many treasuries they can own. And the banks are going with you because they know that at any point you will monetize those holdings. Is there really a difference at that point as far as if look, looking at bank balance sheets or is there really a difference at that point between treasuries and cash? And I don't have the answer for that. I just think it's a really interesting question, meaning that if, if you look at them suspending those leverage limits 
and, and the reason they're willing to do it, right? The reason the Fed says that we'll suspend them, the, the Fed isn't saying that we're not worried that the banks, we don't think that that leverage could hurt the banks. I mean, they're, 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 you know, they're not stupid people. They just saw treasuries flash crash 7.5% in a single day when the Dow was down 13%, right? Another thing that I never thought I'd see in my career. So it's not the banks saying they don't think there's any risk with treasuries. It's the banks saying if they become a problem, we will buy them, right? So you, you're really dealing with semantics at this point. Are they treasuries or are they currency? Are they bank reserves? And if they're bank reserves, don't we need to add that to the monetary supply? Well, if you added treasuries to the monetary supply, you know, you, monetary supply go through the bloody roof. So, you know, I, I just, we're, we're in this weird place where the rules really don't apply at this point. And at some point, right, um, that's going to hit the currency. It just, it's the only pressure relief valve. I mean, it, it, it will have to happen. Um, you know, exactly how it happens, I don't know. But like I said, you know, you've got, I mean, just look at all the stuff. I mean, you know, look, look in the United States now. I mean, you know, the, the, the bastion of free market capitalism in the world and two, three out of the, you know, two out of the three of our biggest markets, the treasury market, the corporate bond market and the U.S. equity market, two of the three are completely price controlled, right? The Fed is, is determining prices in two of those markets. The other market is, to say the least, greatly influenced by what's going on in the other two. So, you know, we don't have free markets. Uh, we're looking at, you know, eight, $9 trillion deficits that are 35, 40% of the entire size of our economy. If you add Fed spending into that, deficit spending plus Fed printed money this year is probably going to hit somewhere between 13 to 14 trillion you know, or 65% the entire size of our economy. I mean, these are things that nobody thought was possible. So does it end in inflation? Absolutely. Um, prior to this, prior to, to the coronavirus thing, I, I, as you, you brought up Patrick Serez and I was, on, uh, I was on the market huddle with he and Kevin Muir. And this was, this was last year. And they asked me, we were having this discussion clear back then, inflation or deflation. And I said, look, I think, it, I think that all roads lead to inflation. I think that's baked into the cake at some point. Um, but I think you'll have a deflationary event first. And I think that the policy response by the Federal Reserve and the federal government will be, you know, the, the, the genesis point for uh, inflation taking off. Now, <laughs> you might say, well, you predicted Corona. No, I didn't. I had no clue that coronavirus was going to happen. I, that just seemed the logical conclusion to me. But at the same time, right, what I said was just as much wrong as it was right, meaning a deflationary event. event. Um, I, I will admit I have been absolutely blown away by the policy response in the coronavirus incident and realize that there were no rules anymore. That if deflation, I'm not so long and short of it is I'm saying based on the policy response and, um, and, and, you know, people, if you, if this was your first cycle, I don't think, you know, but guys like you and I have been around long, long enough, just long enough to know that central banks used to pop bubbles. Central banks didn't used to want them. Now they're actively cheerleading them. Um, you know, and I love it because we were, I was joking around with Luke Roman again on the same show that we did. And, 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 you know, they, they call it market stability, but market stability now means when a market exhibits bubble like uh, uh, features, right? When it's, when it's going up all the time, they call that market stability. Um, so when you have people that create money out of thin air and they don't, they, they apparently have absolutely zero concern about debasing the currency 
and they're willing to give people a 25% raise for sitting on unemployment. And you have a recession where corporate debt rises and consumer income rises. Um, you know, I think at that point you have to say that, hey, maybe a deflationary bust is off the table. Uh, and as much as I hate to say that is a, is a value-based investor and a classical investor in terms of, you know, not believing that history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes and believing that nothing goes up forever. Um, you know, one of the things we're looking at here as it relates to the market and inflation in general is maybe this is kind of the beginning of a Japan scenario or, or not beginning well into the middle, middle of the story. But um, I, I, you know, at some point, the only thing I'm certain of, Chris, is that it, where it ends. Eventually, it ends in inflation. Um, I, I think I'm, I'm leaning toward that. I think that that process has started. That, that's, that's my opinion at this point. Nothing would surprise me. The flip side is, is that when you look at what's going on in the, in the global economy, when you look at the debt levels, when you look at all these things, and then you look at the valuations, especially here in U.S. equity markets and U.S. bond markets and real estate and all that kind of stuff, it feels a lot like you're tap dancing on a trap door. Um, you know, because you're just watching this stuff. I was watching, you know, before, right before we got on, Salesforce uh, came out with their quarterly results. And the stock was up, you know, 14% or something like that. And, you know, this is a stock trading at, you know, 15, 16 times revenue. Um, and I'm reading it and, you know, everybody's extolling them. And I'm sitting there going, I, I really didn't think that was that impressive of a quarter. Um, and, and then you've got the issue of adjuster. Anyway, you look at all these things and, uh, you know, why people are willing to pay these prices, I don't know. But I do see it ending in inflation eventually. Um, my own question, that what we're struggling with is, will there be a deflationary drop between now and then? Or, or did we just see it? You know, because I, I think I don't, if, if people are going to learn one lesson from this, is that if you have, if you are willing to debase your currency and throw truckloads of money at a situation, you can keep assets prices from falling. You, you can. Um, you know, how sustainable is it? I don't know, but, um, you know, they're all in at this point. That's the other thing is, is they're not going to pull back. They're not going to normalize. I, I laugh so hard when I hear anybody talking about that. Um, so anyway, that's a, that's a long answer, but the way we're looking at it at this point is position for inflation and keep a constant eye out for the deflation because, you know, when you get prices this extreme and, and things that don't make any sense, um, you know, it can get ugly in a hurry, just like we saw in March. Yeah, absolutely. And um, yeah, I think, I think for, for those listening who are, uh, let, 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 let's assume someone's just like a long only kind of setup, which, you know, I mean, a, a lot of people are not comfortable taking big short positions. Um, it's, it's kind of interesting because the inflation trade is pretty simple in terms of what one can put on, you know, whether it's, um, in a world where let's say rates remain nominal rates remain relatively low, you know, then, then you're going to get rising. Uh, so you're going to get, sorry, falling real rates, probably good for precious metals. You know, it's probably good for equities, right? Like it, it, it it's good for commodities. Like it, it, there's a lot of kind of relatively easy trades, but the deflationary trade is kind of, um, less obvious to a lot. I mean, traditionally, of course, it's, it's basically government bonds. Um, or just cash, but you're not going to get much return on cash. But um, so it's, I mean, for myself, I'm like, um, um, I, I don't know which, I mean, for me, it's always been a sequencing. I agree that eventually, I'll be very surprised if central banks 
around the world and governments who, have, who are making this up as they go along and are doing years of stimulus in weeks. <laughs> um, right. Right. There is zero chance that they've just magically perfectly got the right amount of stimulus to, you know, just get just a kind of a soft landing, perfect recovery, all this stuff. Like it, they're going to overshoot either way at some point. Um, but, you know, I always like to be fairly hedged. So I don't want to be, um, you know, so I have my deflationary positions, which are mainly kind of um, long, long, long US duration um, and short mm-hmm. US dollar. Um, mm-hmm. Sorry, long US dollar. Sorry, get it the right way around. Um, but having said that, I think my portfolio is better when it's kind of reflation days right now. Um, yeah, but you know, which is odd. You you brought up you brought up a great point that I haven't heard anybody talk about, and I haven't spoken about it because I have, I haven't even verbalized it. But I think you're so right. Which is, you know, if you're looking at an inflationary environment or a deflationary environment, there are things that we know to do in those environments, right? When you look at today. Um, I'm less certain about what what will work in either one of those environments. Yeah, uh, so just true. because, <laughs> well, j- j- right, because it's it's so unorthodox. You know, again, you and I are both macro guys. Um, I've heard a lot of people get frustrated over macro not working, and it, and it really hasn't. It's been a it's been a tough it's been tough sledding. There's a couple exceptions, right? There always are, but but you know, trying to do things on the macro side. But I think that the other thing is kind of, you know, I want to smack my head against a wall and go, well, of course, of course, macro has been tough because central banks are trying to override macro impulses at every turn. And they're, and they've got the ability to print money. Um, and so that, you know, that's a, so yeah. So how do we play deflation and inflation? We, we were riding treasuries once again, which has been obviously, if you've been listening to the beginning of the podcast, it's been one of my, one of my favorite go-tos in deflationary periods. That being said, um, you know, when we sold our, I think we played it via TLT and, and I think we sold it off at, I, I think we sold off our treasuries there in that downturn when, when the 10 year hit like, 0.5. I think it bottomed out at 0.36. So I didn't, didn't bottom tick that one, um, but got pretty close and we sold it. And I watched treasuries dive seven plus percent or something like that on a same day where the Dow was down 13. And, and I did that, that put me back in my chair. Cause I just sat there and I went, okay, what does work, right? What, if we're facing deflation, what is the way to play it? And at this point, you know, the only thing I'm really convinced of is that, um, and and we did this, we did this a lot during this downturn. I, I think really the only play that you can be 100% certain on that's going to work in a deflationary, you know, uh, uh, environment in this environment um, is just to short the indexes. I, I I don't I don't know if I don't know if anything else is really going to pay. Maybe Treasuries go up. Maybe they don't. Um, right, because you know, even maybe, the even the dollar, right, like. In recent weeks, you've had these days where, okay, the dollar's been trending down, but it's had recovery days where it's counter-trend balanced. So i.e. the Dixie, I hate the Dixie because it's just a Euro, US dollar, but whatever whatever index you look at, the dollar has strengthened on that day. But often bond yields have gone up on those days of treasury. Well, that doesn't make sense. So that shouldn't happen, but it did happen. And so... What I found really interesting in the last couple of months is there are days where I have a pretty hedge portfolio, right? Where everything went up and there are days yeah. where everything went down and that's not meant to happen. And, <laughs> and, and, and I say to people, well, if you have days where everything's going up, you're probably not 
really got a very hedge portfolio. You, you haven't got those negative correlations that you think you have. When I had Tim on, who um, uh, used to work at, at Bridgewater, so Apollo Trading online, he's like, yeah, the holy grail we were always seeking at Bridgewater was genuine negative correlations, but it's, it's so difficult. Um, oh, it, it is. And, and, and negative correlations, right? I mean, that's, you, you know, talk about pressing on a trade. I mean, the negative correlations are what really allows you to do that, um, yes. you know, without, without running too much risk. And um, no, it's, there was a day I'm laughing while you talk because yeah, we, we were just having this discussion. I, I, I can't remember. It was, it was probably, it was in the last week and a half, two weeks or whatever. Yeah, it was two weeks ago. Yeah. It was like a Tuesday. Yeah. Yeah. It was just completely bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we were, so we were long volatility on one of those days yeah. and our, our, our main value portfolio was up like 1.2% and we had a long vol position in there and that was green. Right. right? Yeah. The, the Dow was up by like 200 plus points. NASDAQ was going through the roof and volatility was up on the same day. And I'm sitting there going, you know, Hey, we'll take it. Right. Don't get me wrong, but you're just scratching your head going, this is so bizarre. And you know, people are like, oh, it's just one day. And I'm like, well, yeah, I get that. But there are not a lot of days in this type of environment with this type of backdrop where you see those kind of equity rallies and you see the VIX going up at the same time. Um, it's just, it's surreal. I mean, it's almost like, it's almost like we, we put a group of like, you know, 10-year-olds in a room, you know, that had just enough knowledge to know, you know, what something was called the VIX that goes up when we, you know, very rudimentary knowledge. And, and you're like, okay, imagine a bizarre market scenario. And, and it's like, this is what they'd come up with. You know what I mean? Where, where yeah. the Dow's down 13%, the same day treasuries are down 7%. You know, the flip side is the reason we sold our treasuries is I got up one morning and in the overnight market and in, in, in pre-market, our treasury position was up six and a half percent in a single session. And I just went, okay, this is insane and sold it. Um, but you're seeing, and, and, and this gets to the point that we were just making, I think is, is that, you know, to be certain of anything in this environment, you're watching things happen on a daily basis that aren't supposed to be possible. So I think to, to rule anything out and Chris, including one of the things that we've talked about, kind of that Japanese thesis, which is yes, our market's highly valued. Yeah. If, if somebody tells you they're not, I, you know, they've got a crack problem or, or, you know, they, they don't know what they're talking about. I mean, it's, it's pure insanity. That being said, you know, and you know it better than I do, you're, you're talking to me from Hong Kong, but you know, you go look at Japan in the eighties. I mean, you know, when they peaked out, when the Nikkei hit 40,000 or just shy of 40,000, you know, I think their valuation was two and a half times what ours is currently. So, you know, I, I just, yeah, I, it really is tough to play it. And the conclusion that we've come to is that when, when we want those hedges on now, there's really only two things we're using, which is long vol and, and short the indexes. Because it's the only thing that I feel like um, that I can depend on as a, as a, you know, as a, as an investor managing a portfolio you know, feeling confident, you know, cause and I'm sure you've had this Chris, but when you get into really volatile markets and you're an active manager, you almost don't even need to look at the individual positions. You've got a good feel of how your portfolio is doing, you know, just by looking at markets. Um, except during this period of time, you know, I, I just, I had no feel. And that's why we got down to the point of saying, look, we're only going to hedge from here on out with negative in, you know, negative inverse indexes and, and, uh, and volatility because I can't depend on what the hedges are going to do. So it's, yeah, it's, it's the wild west. Right. And I, and 
actually, I'm glad you brought up long bowl because I, I was just thinking, I literally just wrote, wrote that down that that's the other kind of, and I'm not, I, I don't want to use the term obvious because now I've said the word obvious hedge, it of course isn't going to work, but like, <laughs> um, but like I, I put quite a few tweets out on this, which is like volatility um, hasn't, for example, gold volatility went down to 14 on the GPZ um, maybe a couple of months ago. And, and that's when I put on a relatively sizable long options trade. And I'm like, well, okay, that's about where volatility was in 19 when it was at the high end of its range. Um, volatility was obviously a lot lower for a lot of 19 for gold, but it was at least back in the ballpark where in effect you're buying volatility relatively cheaply. Um, and, and certainly you know, by far the cheapest since March of this year. And you know, with the VIX kind of toying at 20, I mean, it's a little higher than that right now. Um, Again, so you know, the way I've gone for this is to to buy kind of like nine month expiry straddles, and then I'll just roll them after six months because uh, you don't want to get theta burned at the end. And like yep. for people that so people like some like specific ideas, like um, and and you can pick whatever index you want. I mean, for that in in, in some ways, it's really volatility trade. Um, but um, you, but even then, you know, and I thought I had a hedge because I was um, long U- U.S. dollar euro. Um, but actually that did weird things in some days too. <laughs> so, yeah, um, you know, it, it I, I just remember like, because what happened first was I had days where everything went up and I thought I was a genius. And then when the days <laughs> come where everything goes down and I mean everything, it's like, and I'm like, but if I look in a textbook, I have like all these different correlations and, um, but it's just a distortion of the central banks uh, and everything like, and I hate saying, you know, this time is different, but like, when you get years of stimulus in weeks, which is really what we got. Um, yeah. yeah it, but to your point, you know, it, it, it's not totally different. It, it rhymes. Um, but, um, it, and ultimately, you know, in terms of the end game, I agree with you that yeah, whilst I think we're probably seeing, I, I'm not so sure there will be a stimulus before the election, you know, the, the, the Pelosi and McConnell are having a, you know, a big uh, kind of fight. Um, Trump's tried to do, and my friend who I had on before, Sterling, who runs a call center, he's in Atlanta. And he said that, he told me the other day that some people are starting to get these new checks because he knows, because they won't work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he runs a call center. So, yep. it's, it's, you know, um, and, um, but that's just in Atlanta. And I think it's only in a small number of states and not the largest states. Uh, so whether they do a stimulus before the election, which would undoubtedly help Trump, I would think. I don't know. Um, but he's going to try and well, do something, I'm sure. Well, remember, the, the other interesting thing about that, too, is, is you've still got that $1.8 trillion, as of last time I checked anyway. You've still got that $1.8 trillion still sitting on the Treasury's balance sheet. So, um, you know, they, from my understanding, now I, I want to put a large caveat out there. I am not an expert in, you know, treasury operations, but from my understanding, they can deploy that capital at any time. If I was Trump or if I was advising Trump's campaign, I'd probably tell him to roll that out sometime between October 1st or, you know, maybe September 15th and October 15th. Yeah. Um, you know, to get maximum juice going right into the election. So maybe that's what he's planning on doing. I, I think, I feel like the thing that I feel the most confident in is he's going to push t- some type of stimulus button before then. I, 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 yeah, I agree with you. I think the left will probably try to fight him a little bit. Um, but, you know, that's one of the things that getting into the talk about the election, you know, here in the U S everybody is so like the narrative that is so popular is that, 
you know, if Trump gets reelected, markets should continue to go up. And if Biden gets reelected, it's going to be a rocky ride. Uh, you know, I'm not so sure that's the case because, you know, for instance, again, I, I don't think people are taking the Federal Reserve seriously enough, right? They've taken over the corporate bond market. If you don't think they'll buy stocks if they have to, you, in my opinion, you're not paying attention. Maybe I'll get proven wrong, but I remember, you know, for the last three or four years, you know, saying that I thought during the next downturn that they'd buy corporate bonds and people told me I was nuts. Um, you know, here we are. I didn't think it happened this quick, you know, I'll admit it, but I, you know, I just don't think people are paying attention. There is nothing they will not do. Nothing. Right. And There's also no consequences. Like, I mean, for example, not for now, one could argue that they've already broken the federal reserve act, although you can make an argument on the um, exogenous or exigent um, circumstances clause, which is kind of in there as a catch-all. And I mean, I've read a bunch of these paragraphs and as always you could, you know, let's be clear, they were written in the 1930s. Um, right. The world's a little different. There's always ways to get around. I'm sure lawyers have looked at all this, but you know, one can, so when I hear people say, oh, well, they definitely can't buy stocks. I'm like, well, why? I mean, I'm like, right. They can. I mean, there's, there's no consequence. Do you think the Dems or the GOP are going to sue the Fed? And if neither of the political parties are interested in doing that, it's not going to go anywhere. That's the reality. Like, no, some fund manager can sue the Fed if they want. They're not going to get anywhere. So like, it, it, I think they can literally do what they want. Um, and then ultimately, they'll just rewrite the act. And then retrospectively, it will be fine anyway. It's like, well, okay, we've, re we've, we've rewritten the act. Okay, maybe you were breaking the law for two years, but we've rewritten it. So who cares? Like, yeah, well, and that's, and this is one of the, this is one of the interesting things I think about what's going on here, especially socially in the United States, because, um, you know, I think that we really need to spend time thinking and looking into what we determine is everything's going to be okay, that there aren't consequences. And, and what I mean by that is, you know, the reason nobody flipped out when the Fed started buying corporate bonds is because it made things go up. And, <laughs> you know, that's it. it. It's really that simple, right? Just that, that, that we're going we're gonna to judge Fed policy. And if you listen to CNBC, you'll hear this all the time. I mean, it's all, if, whatever they do, if it makes, if it results in higher asset prices, that's good. It's, it's Orwellian in a certain way, right? It's two legs good, four legs bad. If prices are up, that's good. If prices are down, that's bad. And you're seriously getting to a point now, and I am one of those people that think it's, it is abundantly clear that they violated the Federal Reserve Act. I mean, I think it's just a game of semantics to say that they didn't. But, um, you know, again, I think it should be a in good indicator of their resolve. And, and you, know, I, you know, what will they not do? And, and um, I, I think that, you know, I, I'm a big fan of um, Bill Fleckenstein, yeah, or Bill Fleckenstein, excuse me, I, 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 I pronounce it wrong. And he, and he gets aggravated with me when I, when I pronounce it wrong. So Bill Fleckenstein. Fleck. Um, I think it's Fleck. Like yeah. You know what? I should just go. Yeah. Just Fleck. I, I don't, yeah, exactly. Fleck. Um, he calls, he, he calls Grant Williams Grant and it's Grant. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. Yeah. You know what? So you're a Brit. So you're a Brit. So I, I was going to ask you about that because I think it's funny whenever Eric Townsend says Grant. Yes. You know, he says Eric does that, but it is the correct pronunciation for British. Okay. Grant. So even, okay. So even Westerners like me with our, with our Western accent, we should, we should pronounce it Grant. You should pronounce it Grant. Um, Although if you kind of make too much of a deal, Eric kind of makes such a deal of pronouncing it because it's kind of become a bit of a meme. It's kind of funny. Yeah, yeah. So you can kind of sound odd if you make too much of an effort. And I think yeah, if you yeah. say Grant, no one really cares. <laughs> 
Um, but you know, every time, every time I hear Eric say it, I, I think of the Grey Poupon commercials, you know, where they, you're, back in the day, they roll up to you, pardon me, you know, do you have any Grey Poupon? I just, it sounds like he's trying to recreate that. It's, it's pretty funny. <laughs> um, but yeah, so, yeah, so Grant, I, I, I just got us completely off track, but I, I had to get some. Well, you were going to talk about Flag. Oh yeah. So, so Fleck, um, you know, he, he, he has the statement, um, you know, he said over and over and I, I don't, I'm, I'm repeating him as a, as a compliment to him. Um, you know, all roads, you know, in a, in a, in a social democracy, all roads lead to inflation. And, um, and he's talked a lot about this too. And, and I'm stealing some of this directly from him, but when you look at what the fed, uh, their resolve, um, and you know, the other thing too, is people, well, they're not going to buy stocks. And I sit there and I'm like, well, guys, if you buy corporate debt, you technically have direct claims on the assets on a company's balance sheet. If you buy equity, you don't. So why do we think that that's more invasive? And, and I'll tell you, again, I think it's a game of semantics. I think the reason they bought corporate debt as opposed to stocks is because if they said that they were putting $2.5 trillion in an SPV that was going to be overseen by the treasury used to buy CLOs and fallen angels, the, the vast majority of investors out there, they lost them at $2.5 trillion in a special purpose vehicle. They, did, they don't know what it is, right? So they can get in there and they can tighten up spreads in a, in a bankruptcy-filled disaster that is the current economy. You've got spreads as tight as they've ever been. Um, and the public in large part, and I remember, I, I, I manage retail money, so I'm dealing with public people on a, on a daily basis barely anybody has any clue what they're doing. Now, at the same time, had they said that they were putting two and a half trillion in a special purpose vehicle to buy equities, to buy stocks, everybody would have known what that meant, right? Everybody, oh my gosh, the Federal Reserve is buying stocks. It would have created shockwaves, right? So I think that, I think the reason they're not buying stocks at this point is purely semantics. I think that they thought they could get the same job done buying corporate bonds. I also think it wasn't really about increasing liquidity. I think they were bailing out their buddies at Bridgewater and, and Citadel. Um, they got caught, you know, running risk parity schemes. And um, I, you know, I just, I think it was a bailout of investors. Once again, you know, just like the airline bailouts, right? The, we we got to bail out the airlines to lose jobs. Well, come on, right? People have a better, well, the average public doesn't, but I mean, that's ridiculous, right? You have a government sheltered bankruptcy process where the government backstops all the jobs. You restructure the debt and you re-release the company out into the market. Right, you exactly. You do that. And, and, and that's, I think that's a great point because what really annoys me is, well, first of all, ultimately it's under the umbrella of the death of capitalism, which I think right. people can probably realize is probably a fairly fair statement these days. But what annoys me about airlines in particular is they've not been very innovative for years. No. All you've had, basically what you had 20 years ago was way too many airlines because every country wanted a national airline. It was a vanity thing. It's like a vanity trade. They just wanted You're to right, be. Yeah. Right. Now what happened is, and it started in Europe, you had um, consolidation. Now there's three main airline alliances in Europe. And then the US started to consolidate. You, know, you had uh, United and Continental, whatever it was. And, right? and so you've got slightly fewer, but then Southwest popped up as being super important. And, and like, US has got a lot of airlines. There's, and, but they're not, outside of the Southwest, not particularly innovative. I mean, the two best well-run airlines in the world, I think are probably EasyJet and Ryanair and probably Southwest too, in terms of they've been consistently profitable. They completely changed aviation in Europe. Some say for the worse, but, but like, to your point is, is, if some of these companies go bankrupt, the assets are still there. Someone else takes over. 
and can probably run them more efficiently and actually innovate. And by the way, the airlines are going to have to innovate because the world is going to change in terms of travel. Um, so I just think when all this happens, this kind of my glass half empty is like, well, we're now draining economies of that ability to reinvent themselves. Um, but you know, also 100%. the glass half full is like, and let's, let's think of the glass half full, you know, how do we, you know, there's a lot to complain about and bitch and whinge and, make, and there's also a lot of opportunities, but how do we make the 2020s like a great decade? Like, um, you know, people have been talking about, you know, the, the sore need for infrastructure in say the U S uh, that's less important in some other countries. Um, but like what I see right now is, you know, we've got civil unrest that's very topical as of today. Um, you know, you've got inequality at levels where, I mean, 50% of the Americans don't even have any assets. So like they don't give a crap if the stock market's up or down. Um, the last time it was like, th like this was the late 1930s and that didn't end well. Um, and no one wants this to end with a war. Absolutely no one, but there's different types of wars these days. It doesn't have to be kind of bombs. So like, how you know if if i'm a 22 year old leaving college you know what is there to really look f I'm, oh my god i'm sounding so pessimistic but like how do we paint a positive <laughs> picture for the next 10 years because i believe humans are resourceful and we'll get through things so yeah. maybe it needs political change i don't know but um. you know i i think i think i mean i think that's um, way to get to the heart of the matter because I think that's a great question. Um, I was going to say, I've just I teed you up. Obviously a very simple question. You know, you have 280 characters. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, no, it's, but it, but it's a great question because that, you know, that's the flip side to investing, right? We, we can get on here and talk doom and gloom all we want. And, and that tends to be more um, intellectually stimulating. Uh, the flip side is as an investor that can cost you a lot of money too, because you, you've got to, you got to have eyes out on both sides. I think that, I think there are a couple things. First of all, um, you know, technology, not to beat a dead horse, but it really is incredible the strides that we've made technologically over the, um, you know, over, you know, over the last century for sure, but, but especially the pace of innovation and, and the way things have gone in the last 10 years. Um, I think you'll continue to see challenges and opportunities presented by that, that technology. Um, uh, I also think that it is, I, I think it is a wonderful opportunity for younger investors um, if they can take advantage of it, meaning, um, yeah, look, a lot of investors are going to learn a very valuable lesson about mean reversion here. And by mean reversion, I don't mean that we're going back to the stone ages and everything is bad, but, um, I, you know, when you have made, you know, we have made ridiculous amounts of money during different, you know, different periods, um, on in natural resources, uh, specifically in gold and, 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 and silver miners, um, not things that you want to buy and hold for the long run, but um, you, you can, you know, we, you've got this whole generation of investors that have only seen tech stocks do this. And, you know, I've owned mining companies that have been up, you know, 120, 130% in a day, yeah. um, you know, that have, that have had unbelievable returns. And, and, and you know, so I, I think that investors can learn, especially younger ones who are nimble and are mentally flexible, that clearly everybody is on one side of the boat. And I don't know when this run will end, but um, I feel very confident saying that tech will not continue to dominate in terms of asset prices the way it has over the last 10 years. And it won't, it won't do the same over the next 10. 
Um, and, you know, I think that there's huge benefits there. The, the other benefits that I think are possible is, look, I, I think that we've got some rough times ahead as it relates to the challenges that we're currently facing. But um, you, you made a comment that I, again, I, I'm, not, I'm not just blankly agreeing with everything you say, but I, I think you're spot on, which is humans are really resourceful. And, um, you know, we're going to have to deal with this debt issue. Uh, probably, it seems now like sooner rather than later, it just seems like it's getting so out of control. And, um, you know, who knows what that looks like, right? Maybe, you know, maybe it's a, some type of debt jubilee, you know, and I'm not saying I, I, I don't recognize there are problems in that. Um, but the problems will get dealt with. And, and, and here's the other thing. I, I also don't think that you're necessary. I don't, I don't think you're necessarily sounding macabre if, if you say that you've got tough times ahead. I think that, you know, I think one of the, in my opinion, I think one of the nefarious aspects um, or the, or the, you know, negative impacts of what the Fed has done is I, I think, I think things have been too good for too long. And by that, I'm not saying that I want them to get worse. What I'm saying is that I don't think I think people, especially here in the United States, are too far removed from seeing the negative impacts of too much debt or seeing the negative impacts of too much, you know, spending or, or seeing the negative impacts of, of too, you know, um, uh, increasing the money s supply too rapidly. And I think that there's this, you know, bulletproof mentality. And I think the Fed has done a lot to reinforce that. Um, and I think that what they're effectively doing is they're like the little kid with his, you know, the, 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 the what was it? The, the Dutch, the proverb of the Dutch kid or the story about having his finger in the dike, right. Holding, holding, holding the back, you know, it's a temporary measure at best. And, um, uh, but what I think that people, especially on the investing side need to realize is that, you know, will we have some ugly times ahead of us? Yes. Yeah, it seems like kind of a guarantee at this point, but um, you know, it does remind me of something that if you can, if you can be disciplined and you can stick to your guns that the, the biggest wealth and the biggest fortunes are made during periods of economic instability. They're also lost too. There's a flip side of that coin, but um, yeah, you know, it, it's not just a, right. It's not just a binary story. I mean, I, I think that, you know, bad times, you know, what, well, quick example too is, is I, I think one of the worst things about what the Fed did during the last crisis uh, and, and after it was juicing it so much, meaning that they very quickly removed the only upside to a recession and the only upside to a recession for the average consumer is lower prices, right? So, you know, by the time the average guy had in, and I, I'd said this in a previous show that, that Rudy Havenstein is, his his captioned and retweeted a couple of times. So I'm not trying to like repeat it again, but you know, if the average guy out there, you look at 0809, he loses his house by the time he repairs his credit and he can qualify for a mortgage again. And the reason he lost his home was through no fault of his own. You know, maybe he, let's say he wasn't one of these guys that did a liar loan. He didn't honest loan. Uh, lost his job, couldn't cover his house payment, you know, all that kind of stuff. By the time his credit repaired enough, if he turned around and wanted to buy the same house that he got foreclosed on, the house was up 40% from where he got foreclosed on, right? So, um, you know, it's it, things going down in price, right? It was Rothschilds that said, you know, you buy when there's blood in the streets. I think that there's tremendous opportunity, but I do think that, you know, I think it's really hard in this current structure to paint a rosy picture uh, about the next 10 years 
it, it, in the way that we currently define it, right? Like you and I were saying is that good is if things go up in price. I think if that's your definition, I think the, it, it will be tough sledding over the next decade. But I think if you're, I think if you're more flexible and you're more historically literate as it relates to finance, you know, investing in financial markets, um, you know, I, I, the, for the other thing, you, you know, I, I think that, um, Again, I manage retail money, so there, there is definitely an aspect of me talking my book here, but I think there's an incredible uh, opportunity in miners, uh, in gold, um, and silver for that matter. Um, I think there's potentially mind-numbing opportunities in Bitcoin. Um, th that's tougher for me, though, again, managing the type of money that I'm managing because, you know, Bitcoin is it's a completely different animal. Um, and I love it. I, I love what it stands for. I love what it does. My biggest problem with Bitcoin has been, um, again, I, 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 I have made the mistake of underestimating the resolve of the Federal Reserve. And I do not think the central banks around the world, including the Federal Reserve, are going to sit idly by while the world migrates to an to a alternative currency like Bitcoin. Now, at the same time, I, I don't, there's some people that know a lot more about Bitcoin than I do that say that, you know, there's really nothing they can do. Um, and I don't know of anything that they could do to disrupt it. I just know that it, when I look across the table and I'm competing against central banks, that scares the living heck, heck out of me. Um, right. Whereas I feel like gold isn't, I, I feel like gold really isn't it, you know, we'll make money off of central bank largesse, but it's not, you know, they own gold too. So it's not, I'm not competing directly against them. Um, but yeah, I think there's going to be tremendous opportunity, but I don't think it's going to be in the way that we've seen over the last 10 years. I think that there will be tough times. And I think if you can be disciplined and, you know, and I think the toughest thing, Chris, is part of that discipline. I think part of what you're doing right now is going to predicate a lot of what your results will be over the next 10 years. Meaning if you're trying to, if you're chasing this stuff, if you're buying Tesla at $2,000, uh, if you're loading up the, uh, the, the truck on Apple right here at 500 bucks, and you're, you, you're not adhering to a risk management process and you, you're not diversified and you're not using some hedges, I think it could be a brutal 10 years. Um, you know, and, and, and again, I don't have a crystal ball, so I could be wrong. But, um, you know, if you're, if you're doing some of the things that you talked about you doing and that, that we're doing, um, you know, I think you'll be able to take advantage of some of these, this craziness. And I think a, a lot of new fortunes and a lot of new wealth will be generated um, even, even, if, even, even when we go through these nasty periods. Absolutely. And um, just for those that want something a bit spicy that I haven't talked about that much, but have a little bit, if you really want to spice up the commodity miners, have a look in the uranium sector. Um, yeah. Yeah. It had, if look at the uranium chart from 10, 12 years ago. It looks like a, well, it looks like a Bitcoin chart. Um, yeah. By the way, it had ups and downs and there were certain companies that lost 99.9% .9 of their value and somehow didn't go away. But, um, but, um, so if, you know, for me, I'm playing that long-term just call options in, um, um, Cameco. So CCG. Yeah, we, we, we are too. We've got Cameco in our portfolio and our value portfolio. It's not in our, uh... and the reason Cameco is because whilst they have some part of the joint venture in Kazakhstan, most of their uranium's, uh, in, um, North America. So it's just yep. political. Um, more, more stable, but I'm not an expert in uranium, but it, and it's not a big position, but it, it's for those that think, you know, the gold trades, everyone's long gold. <laughs> so, and I can guarantee you not everyone's long uranium. So, um, well, and not, that's, you know, and, and that's, I, you, 
that's one of the so that's one of the things that worries me is that gold is so popular. That being said, if you look at retail investment data and you look at the average portfolio allocation to gold, I believe it's less than half a percent. It's point four percent. There you go. Okay, and, and, that's, and that's not just retail; that's institutions too. Point right? Yeah, right. There you go. Okay. Long term mean is about four percent. Well, it was two to four percent. It depends how it's really hard to like get it exactly right it, to pin it down way lower than it's kind of where it has been. Now, you could argue there's yeah. no asset classes now and there's all sorts of stuff, but like, yeah, well, yeah, you could, and then you could also argue that that you know, gold is much more accessible today than it was. Ah, then, well, you, know, you see, that, that, I did a whole podcast on this, it, it's on it's, it's called a framework for the 2020s, and it's all about liquidity of hard assets. And I kind of sat down one day and thought, because you've been talking in decades and it's actually quite interesting. If you look over the last, since the twenties, actually they really have, for whatever reason, a lot of themes have actually aligned pretty precisely with the decades. Um, it's, it's not exact, but it's kind of, um, and let's say the last decades being central bank printing and basically tech. Right. Um, and, um, my kind of point in this was, look, I don't know what's going to happen in 2020, but if the central banks are not going to slow down. And so feels to me like having decent material allocations to hard assets is a smart thing. Now, the problem with hard assets, whether it be gold, Bitcoin, art, these types of things, um, they have different liquidity profiles. And my point was like, when you look to what happened to gold, when the ETF came, and it only came in the early 2000s, people forget that has not had an ETF forever. Um, the amount of money flowing in because it was suddenly liquid went berserk uh, and helped fuel that previous running gold. Um, so my point was being like, for me, like, for, you know, yes, you can own a, maybe you own a Picasso. Okay, fine. But it's, it's not going to be that liquid. However, if that can be securitized or tokenized, it doesn't matter. It's the same thing into a thousand small pieces. And then that is liquid. You could see vast changes in, um, hard assets that are really liquid. So I kind of think of them on this liquidity spectrum. And actually the most liquid hard asset is, is, is and this is gonna really annoy some people, it's ETF gold and it's Bitcoin. It's not physical gold, it's less liquid. Yeah, um, no, it, it might annoy people, but it's true. And I mean, ETF gold that's backed by gold. I'm not talking about futures, which is paper gold. Right. And, that's a whole different ball game, which I've learned not to get into on Twitter because it's, life is not worth living if you do. So. <laughs> Um, I know, and 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 the like, the intensity of that debate. Oh, is sorry, so I meant life's not worth living if you if you do the same with silver. It's even worse if you mention silver. Oh yeah, oh yeah, no, no, that's walking into the lion's den. I've re- and the funny thing that cracks me up is the vast majority of these people having these, you know, death duels about this topic. They're all both sides are long the the metal, right? No, <laughs> and it, and it, it, I was it, just it, thinking it, that, yeah. I've yeah, heard it's, people it's odd. just, oh my God, they're like, they whinge about, and look, I get there might be some shenanigans behind the scenes or not, whatever, but let's be clear, we're in a world where pretty much every asset is completely manipulated. And it's like, right. if, if you think something's manipulated and you're going to bitch and whinge every time it goes down, don't invest in it. I just right. don't care about your machinations of this. Oh, silver's gone down 10%. Oh, JP Morgan's done what, Jamie Dimon's obviously told someone, like, it's like, maybe there's some truth to it. I've no idea, but like, 
it's like if you don't like it don't invest in it um, yeah well the, and the, yeah and then the other thing too is that you know again i haven't been doing this for 50 years but if your if your bull or bear thesis is based on a conspiratorial um you know <laughs> set up with central banks manipulating the price you know whatever if that's part of your investment thesis like you know prepare yourself for a long hard road right because there have been times where I've found some of those arguments regarding certain things attractive and um, you know, I've never seen it personally play out. Um, and I just, I think that that's a really dangerous investment thesis to have. Um, you know, the other one that cracks me up is people love gold, but they hate gold miners. And, you know, I ask them, you know, have you ever invested through a gold bull market before? And, you know, they'll of course say yes. And I'm just like, you know, and they're telling me that but this is the time the miners are going to go down even if gold goes up because miners are horrible and blah, blah, blah. And, Interesting, um, the, anti, the anti-Buffett trade. So. Right, right, we, right. The anti-Buffett trade. Now he's, now he's a... Well, now he's put 0.3%, if that. <laughs> yeah, no. And it's not a big position. That was the other thing. I was watching the gold bugs go nuts about that. Um, it wasn't even, yeah. it would have been one of his uh, other guys. I mean, yeah. One of the guys. Yeah. Deals. He doesn't care. No, no, no. It's not even big enough to move a needle. What I do think though, and I had this back and forth with Brent Johnson on Twitter, who, who's a great guy. Um, yeah. Nothing but respect for Brent. And I consider him a friend, but um, it, he and I were talking about it and I was like, Brent, I'm with you. This doesn't change anything for gold. And, and, you know, the same people that were saying Buffett was an idiot. This is the point Brent made about it. He goes, you know, the same people saying Buffett are an idiot. Now all of a sudden he's a genius. And I go, look, I agree with you there. But what I find fascinating is that, you know, arguably one of the greatest investors to ever do it, who has been probably the most outspoken about how ridiculous he believes gold in gold is just bought a gold miner. And I don't think that that's a reason to buy gold. It doesn't change my positioning whatsoever. I do think it is a bit of a tell though, because Buffett is extraordinarily level-headed and a big believer, obviously, in the US. I, I do think that what that positioning, along with his unusually large cash, cash positions, I do think that that shows you know, I always sit there and go, don't tell me what to invest in. Show me what's in your portfolio, right? I, w- I don't want to hear what your thoughts are. Show me what you're doing. Um, yeah, and, and I, I think, think what, that is- $140 billion of three-month treasury bills, basically. Yeah. In effect, yeah. cash. Um, right, yeah, right. That tells you quite a lot. So, yeah, I mean, that, that's a bit, yeah, that's a big position. I think it's, what is it, 35 36% of Ber- Berkshire's total market capitalization, something like that. Um, And then, you know, you add a gold miner into the mix. I think what it's saying, and I think if the average investor does not pick up on this, is that guys, we are off the map. And what is going, and I think it's, I I had this conversation with a client of mine where he goes, well, Zach, he goes, you know, it's not too late. We can still get things on the right track fiscally here in the United States. We can, you know, we can still get out of this mess. And I looked at him and I said, no, I don't, I don't think you're correct. Meaning that, and that's why I'm still convinced it's going to end in inflation. Because if you, if you think about um, just, just where we are in terms of how extreme all this is, if, if, if the federal, let, let's, so pre-COVID in January of this year, we were running, we were on pace to run, I believe a 1.35 or $1.36 trillion deficit this year. I believe that, if I remember correctly, that was the pace. So even using pre-COVID numbers, so before, you know, because obviously that number has gone through the roof this year. 
But my point was simply that if in, in the late 90s, 98, 99, we balanced the budget here in the United States. So we weren't paying down any debt, but we weren't accruing any new debt. We had a balanced budget for the first time, I think, in 40 years. Um, if you balance the budget today, you'd be looking at somewhere between a 6 to 7% hit to GDP just by balancing the budget. And to put that into perspective, um, you know, the financial crisis itself was a 3.8% hit to GDP. It's a double GFC for balancing. The right. <laughs> balancing the budget. Right. And, and that's, and Chris, that's using pre COVID numbers. Right? If we, yeah, if we use, yeah. You know, if we use post COVID numbers, it gets even crazier. And I think if people are not worried about inflation with this backdrop, um, you know, I don't know what to tell you. I, I just, I mean, and then, and, and, and that to me is the problem is it's not just about getting back on the right track. It's that to get back on the right track would be a recession that was twice as bad as the global financial crisis, which almost brought the entire, you know, global financial system to its knees. So, you know, they're all in, they have to keep printing. Right. And I, I just, I, I don't see how they get out of it, you know, um, because if they've done all these things to stave off the great recession and normalizing back to a balanced budget would create a recession twice as big as what they were. Why would they do that? They're not going to. Right. So and I think it's a really interesting point. And um, I've been thinking about a similar thing and, 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 and whilst, you know, I can see that there might be some deflationary stuff in the next six, nine months, but let's just park that for now and just say, right, let's assume that the end game is ultimately fiat currencies in the world competing with each other to debase themselves. Like, and right. um, this is going to suck, by the way, for most people. Um, but I think what's going to be very interesting is so people could say stuff like, well, why don't you own tips? Or I like this thing called L tips because it's like the TLT of tips. It's 25 year yep. average duration. And but, but, but then, of course, you're dealing with 30-year inflation expectations, so it can have different dynamics too. But my point to people has been, well, you know, so using your stats from earlier, I think it's best probably um, summarized on shadowstats.com, but you know, where it's 5 to 6% inflation if we use measures from 30, 40 years ago, um, except you know, the, the PCE or the CPI or the GDP deflator, which just gets made up every quarter. Um, right. Like literally. Um, right. But it was minus 2% uh, last quarter. No one talked about it. So they goosed GDP by 2%, real GDP. Like out of nowhere. But what does that right. tie up with? Nothing. And in Q4, 19, they did the same thing. But my point was that what they're going to do is inflation, people will accept that the world is ultimately got a huge problem with inflation only when it's just self-evident it's like when there's any problem but at some point it will just be self-evident to everyone and it's and and by saying no 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 inflation's because the government has an incentive to say inflation's low because they have they have trillions of dollars of tips so if if, if cpi is at five percent really and they can claim it's at one and a half it costs them less to have the tips so the tips aren't going to hedge you i do own some but I don't see why they're going to be a perfect hedge because the government's going to muck with the, the data. And at oh, some yeah. point, it would just become so self-evident, which some would argue it already is in terms of the more kids you have, the more self-evident it is that there's inflation in the world. No kidding. Um, and I think I heard Luke Gorman say that recently. And I was just like, I don't agree with everything you say, Luke. I think you're a super smart guy. Uh, although I think he's been on fire recently. Um, yeah, he's like, been pretty hot. 
oh my God, I am like a hundred percent getting where you're coming from there. Um, <laughs> and, um, and, and then that's going to be, that's going to be a really shitty world. Um, because and to your point, maybe there is a Jubilee, which in effect means if you're a long-term holder of low rate debt, you're going to have problems, um, big problems. Um, but, um, who knows, right? Because Japan is very different in many ways too. So there's obvious similarities, um, but it's a much more insular economy. So we're just going to keep Yeah, well, I, you know, I, I agree with you. And I don't, think, I don't think Japan is a perfect analog. The one thing that I do think is really interesting is um, if you look at what Japan was doing that really fueled that bubble and that, that, that culminated in the late 80s, you know, they were mandating loans, right? They had the, what was the policy they had? Um, window dressing, yeah. Window dressing, yes, yes. Um, they're mandating the issuing of loans. I really don't see, I, I think the Fed is doing the exact same thing just from the other side of the ledger, right? I think that they're, right. you know, they're buying up debt, which is, which is, you know, freeing up capital to issue more, right? So, you know, they're, they're maybe they're not mandating, maybe they're on loan quotas, but if you're printing up money and you're buying all the supply, you know, you're, you're basically encouraging the, well, the issuing is, of more debt. That is the one interesting thing though right now, because if you look at the H8 every, uh, week, which comes out on a Friday from the Fed and, and is looking at the balance sheet of the commercial banks. I mean, there's always a spike up in commercial industrial loans at the beginning of a recession, which is what we saw. And then it just trends down and it absolutely has turned around is trending down. The absolute loans are going down in terms of dollar terms for CNI, for commercial uh, consumer credits, um, autos about flat, uh, real estate's been going up, but slowly there's not much credit being created. Um, so, Again, that's why I still have this pause for thought on the deflation angle in the me short to medium term. Long term, I think, you know, fine. It, it's like everyone's going to get more and more desperate. And um, ultimately, that what Japan did was the, the last innings. Um, so maybe we're not even in the last innings, which is kind of a even more crazy thought. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think that well, I think there's another dynamic too. And 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 listen, you know, I am obviously spitballing. I think that, you know, just to, as a side note, I think that. Look, I I get um, I'm not as active on Twitter as I once was. Um, and I, one of the things that started to wear on me was certainty. You know that that a lot of times, and, and a lot of them are great guys. I'm not panning on anybody, but you're watching these guys get parroted around, um, you know, with these, you know, these passionate followers that just think that these guys, you know, can't, can't screw up and can't make a wrong call. Um, anybody that's out there selling certainty in this environment, you know, you're a charlatan. No, nobody's certain of anything. So, you know, you bring up, you know, I think Japan is a great, is a great counterpart to the, to the argument, meaning, yeah, I could be completely wrong. Maybe this is the beginning of a 30-year cycle where, you know, we're fighting deflation. You know, it's possible. I, I think the dynamics are different, meaning that, you know, everybody talks about how indebted Japan is. It's true. Much bigger, you know, share of debt to GDP, but virtually 96% of that debt, I believe, is held internally. So that's a big difference. Um, you know, like you said, it's such an, it's such an insular economy. It is so... Um, you know, there's the, you know, it's completely homogenous. I mean, there, you know, it's, it, there's so many key things that are very different. The other thing I think too, is that, you know, the yen is not the reserve currency of the world. Um, and so, 
I don't think it has as large a platform to fall from as the dollar. And I, I, you know, it seems to me that the writing is on the wall, which is, you know, I don't think that the Russias and the Chinas of the world and, and uh, other companies that or other countries that will certainly join their ranks. I don't think they're going to sit idly by and continue to allow the U S dollar to be weaponized as a, as a, you know, a preeminent tool of, of geopolitical, you know, control. Um, yeah, it's the biggest weapon I, I, America has, literally. A- absolutely, absolutely, and 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 therein lies where I think the you know the biggest threat to the dollar is. I just, I, you know, not only that, but the dollar system is clearly broken and is not malfunctioning. And I don't think, based on you know the what I'm looking at, I don't think it's gonna. I don't think it's a fixable issue. I just think that, I think that the 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 global economy and the markets have outgrown the dollar. Um, and I could be wrong about that too. Um, you know, I've been thinking, I, I think there might be a middle ground, which is um, the dollar could say not the dollar, the US Treasury could lose its status as the world's kind of preeminent reserve asset or most pristine collateral, which it kind of is right what well, it is right now. And that could happen yeah. without that could happen with the US dollar still being the reserve currency, because there isn't really an alternative in terms of a reserve currency in the world. Although, of course, central banks are now working on digital versions. But no one really knows where all this is going. It will be very, very telling if the treasury doesn't become at some point is not the kind of preeminent, most pristine collateral. And one could argue, by the way, this is where Bitcoin can come in or gold things or all sorts of stuff. There's lots of interesting stuff because it's generally a process, right? De-dollarization, you know, when the pound, let's just say lost out to the dollar, it was from the first to the second world war, right? It took a, it was a process of 25, 30, 40 years. Didn't just overnight happen. Um, but it looks like the yeah. writing's on the wall, but that could be on the wall for a long, 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 long time. And the more politicians weaponize the dollar, the quicker it's going to happen um, because other people are just going to have enough. And even Mark Carney spoke out about that in Jackson Hole whenever it was a year or two back, probably the least welcome speech ever if you're an American like, right. <laughs> central well, banker. I- but he said everything. You know what he said? He said what everyone else around the table that was not American was thinking. And that's why I had great respect for that speech. Yeah, no, and I did too. And 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 I I I think that, I, and I think that we have to get out. I think that, I you know that type of thinking, you know that yes, a lot of people that were not fans of that speech because they're American. I'm sitting there going, but that that shouldn't have any bearing on, you know, on the way you think. If you want to maintain reserve currency status, start doing things differently. Right? Don't gripe about the fact that the rest of the world doesn't like it. You wouldn't like it if the roles were reversed. And I think that that same type of binary thinking is really what's kind of gridlocked American politics, which is, you know, it's all or nothing. Like you said, there's room in the middle. There's always room in the middle. There's always, you know, there's always, you know, a middle ground. And typically, let's be honest, that middle ground is usually what plays out. Um, yes. Well, and, the U.S. system sort of forces it, right? I mean, yeah. says someone owns all three parts of, well, sorry. I said once all three parts of government and someone quite rightly sent me a message saying that's not how it is, Chris, because the judiciary is the third part. But what I mean is if someone runs the Senate, the House and the presidency, then um, have the clean sweep, right? Then then, then maybe yeah. not. But, but that's actually not the norm. And it's actually a very yeah. clever system in many ways. Um, yeah. it, well, it is. And, and uh, you know, one of the one of the things I think is is unfortunate about what's happening here in the in the US political system is this. And I think it goes, you know, I, look, I think it goes back to I think it goes back to Carney speech. And I think it goes back to US hubris. Um, 
and, and I'm not beating up on my own country. I'm a red blooded American boy that grew up, you know, and, and loves his country. And, and yet at the same time, I'm not blind to the things that we're doing wrong. And I also, I, the, the thing that I've grown very tired of is listening to the political opposition on both sides, blame all the profligacy and debt and all the bad things on each other, where you sit there and go, listen, I, I I've seen a clear pattern. Uh, you know, George W. Bush took the federal debt from five, from 5 trillion to 10 trillion. Barack Obama ran it up from, you know, or, or, or not just short of 10 trillion. Barack Obama took it to nine and change and ran it up to 18. Uh, Trump is well on his way to doubling it again. Um, you know, that's Republican, Democrat, Republican. If you're not seeing the pattern here that it doesn't really matter who's in office. Right. And, you know, if you're still, if you're still, you know, adhering to the, you know, the binary uh, political outlook of, you know, red is good and blue is bad or the inverse or whatever the case may be. I think you're really missing out because I think the only consistency in American politics is the constant failing of, of, um, you know, of, of American intentions and getting involved in things we shouldn't and spending too much and poorly allocating resources. Um, and, and that's a hundred percent consistent, uh, you know, specifically on the government, on the government or the, you know, the, the fiscal side of things. Um, you know, it, it's just, it, it's, it's, I think pe people need to leave these old worn out political ideals on the side and really start examining the problem for what it is. And, um, it kind of harkens back to that conversation we, we touched on a little bit about, you know, this belief that if Biden gets elected, the markets are going to nosedive. And if Trump gets elected, they'll continue to go up. And I'd sit there and look at you and go, look, the reason the markets are going up this year has nothing to do with Trump. It's got everything to do with the blank check that the U.S. government, that both parties signed off on, the Fed printing six and a half trillion dollars. All of those things can continue regardless of who's in president, you know, who's the president. And I think they will continue. They can't stop. Right. If they stop, this is why I was sitting there talking about, you know, if you balance the budget, it would be twice as big of an economic crisis as the financial crisis. So, you know, I, I, I just I think we're pinning way too much on on the political side of things and, and that. And, and I think that's happening with the dollar, too. People going, oh, you know, he's wrong. How you know, I don't even know how you make the argument that they haven't weaponized the U.S. dollar. You know, I it just it's crazy to me to even make that argument. And you're like, oh, well, we got to keep Iran in line and, you know, we got to do why. When did we start dictating policy to other countries? And maybe, and maybe us dictating policy to other countries, maybe that's the genesis of a lot of the problems that we're having. Right. And why don't we finish with, um, I just wanted to pick up on one comment, which is on the election. I mean, I've been thinking through, because you know, my base case is, and I'm just looking at the data, right? Biden wins presidency, Dems keep the house. That seems to be pretty clear in most scenarios. And then of course the Senate could be the tricky one, but let's say that stays with the GOP. Biden would have to have quite a landslide for the Senate to flip. And in which case you've still got a situation where um, I could literally, I mean, it's perfectly possible that if that happened, um, GOP would not allow stimulus to go through in a way that they would consider might help the administration and they could hold in effect, the country to ransom. Now, some people would argue this might be a good thing because actually the country can move on from just getting ever more indebted. Um, but I think if you just look at the numbers, that's the most likely outcome of the election, unless Biden has a landslide. Um, and I'm well aware that like lots can change. Um, but I mean, I don't think anyone's really thinking, well, the data certainly doesn't suggest that Trump's going to have a landslide. So um, I think there could be a lot more deadlock than, yeah, I mean, Whilst I agree that, like, I'm sure there's going to be a bunch more stimulus, um, 
I still think there are scenarios where, you know, you could just get this political deadlock, meaning that the GOP just dig in and say, right, well, we're not going to help you. Um, and, um, and they could do that for four years. Um, I mean, you know, whether it comes to Supreme Court seats or whatever, like I think someone was asking me the other day, well, what do you think GOP will do if someone like Ruth Bader Ginsburg dies after Trump's lost the election? Let's say he does. And I'm like, well, they will absolutely, without any hesitation, try and get someone confirmed before the 21st of January or whatever it is. And even if people may be up in arms in that, um, and maybe one of the issues the Democrats have had over the years is they haven't been so kind of cynical. Um, but um, it's, uh, I don't know, we'll see. At some point, it, politics has to, it, it can't be this partisan forevermore, surely. But you know what? UK has got a similar thing, so. Um, yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's um, the, the political you know, as crazy as the, as crazy as the monetary and, and fiscal side of things are, you know, I think one of the biggest divides that we face here in this country, and I think this election is somewhat of a, you know, um, a trial, if you will. Um, but it's not really, that's the other, that's the other thing is, you know, there's this analogy out there, you know, or, or I, and, and, you know, if, if people want to know, or if, or if you're trying to read between the lines of my political leanings, um, you know, historically, I'm much more to the right because I look at things on a on a monetary, you know, and, and economic basis, and I just don't think the government is an efficient allocator of resources. I also understand that, um, you know, especially as I have gotten older, I also understand that that there is no one party or no one political movement that's got a, you know it's got a, you know, a claim on the truth or a claim on, you know, being able to do things, you know, correctly. But I think that, I think one of the false memes about this election is that it's for, you know, one candidate is free markets, one candidate's not. Um, you know, I would just tell people, go look, and, and I'm not beating up on Trump. And, and I think that anybody that was president while during the coronavirus, I think they would have done the exact same thing. So I don't think it's a political issue, but um, you know, I mean, you, you had the corporate bond market and effectively the stock market, uh, you know, co-opted by the Fed and, 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 you know, money printing and Fed printing and all that kind of stuff under Trump's watch. So, you know, people are like, we got to save capitalism. And I'm like, well, you do, we don't have it. <laughs> we haven't had capitalism here for quite a while. Um, you know, so I think you're kind of, I think you're fighting to save something that's not there. And I, I agree with you. I mean, it seems to me like, right. It, all these things ebb and flow. We're at this period of like maximum, you know, political polarization and history would tell you we'd come back in. The, the one thing I would say different about this though, is that this isn't an issue like it was in the sixties. This is, this is like a foundational issue about how the country has been founded. You have one, you know, you got one side of the country that wants free markets and personal freedom. You have another side of the country that wants guaranteed outcomes. Um, that is new. And, you know, I think that, um, I, I think that especially in uncertain times like coronavirus, I think the lure or the siren song of, of government fixing problems is inherently going to suck a lot of people in. Um, I, I would just really caution people and remind them that, you know, um, you know, how many problems has government actually fixed? Do they fix problems or do they exacerbate them? Um, you know, and I, I just think people are being very unrealistic about what the government can do and what they should do and, and the likelihood of their success. And I think that that's, 
I, I, I hope it's something that we can come back together. You know, when we, you look back in the 80s or the 70s and stuff like that, you know, we had political disagreements, but nobody wanted to be a socialist. If you got called a socialist, you know, you were blackballed from American politics. Now you have people campaigning as a socialist doing very well, right? That, that's a huge sea change. Um, so it'll be fascinating to see the way it plays out. And I, I, I obviously hope that we go the right direction, which is, you know, no system is without its flaws. Um, capitalism is, is, is right along there with them, but you know, with its flaws, I think it's still proven to be the most successful system. And I think some of those flaws can be bettered, uh, can be improved, but, um, you know, I just, I, I think Americans need to be very cautious when assessing whether they really want to jump or, you know, switch horses in midstream because you got a system that's worked pretty well and it needs some tweaking. The wealth inequality is completely out of control, but I would, I, again, I would lay that at the feet of not enough capitalism, right? I, I think that's one of the other sad things is that, that so many of the ills that are being put on capitalism, capitalism hasn't been in play, right? It's been, it's been you know, the, the preeminent player in financial markets has been central banks and governments themselves. So, you know, I think, I think capitalism is getting a bad rap and um, we'll, we'll see. It's going to be interesting. That's for sure. Well, with that, Zach, let's, let's leave it there. It's a fascinating conversation. Thank you. Um, well, no, hey, and, and it's, fun to be on the other, it's fun to be on the other side of it, but you better know that I'm going to be leaning on you to get you on our show here, and hopefully we Absolutely. can make that happen in the next week or two. Yeah, maybe we, um, yeah, we can carry on, and maybe, but we could maybe go into things like, um, we didn't talk that much on cryptocurrency, which could be interesting. Um, and, well, um, I would like to, and I would like to talk to you about that because I'm, I'm somewhat of a newbie. I mean, I think I, I know more than the average, the average guy about it. But um, yeah, I would love to pick your brain about that and then also get some information on your background and, and how you've gotten there because you're, you're a bit of a renaissance man. Um, let's do it. Well, we'll do that in the next, um, get that done in the next uh, couple of weeks, hopefully, or next month. So perfect. Cool. Sounds good. Hey, and I really appreciate have, you having me on. It's, it's been a blast to discuss and we've been going back and forth on social media for a really long time. So it was fun to actually connect and be able to talk live. Great. Thanks very much, Zach. You bet. Thank you.